So I actually felt this might actually be the beginning of a little bit of a series on saved. So what I want to focus on today is the so what about salvation because I have a, a little bit of a theory that so many people get really enthused about church and about Jesus, about doing the works of the Lord. And they do that for a while and then they tend to grow a little bit cold. And I think often that's because we don't really understand what it means to be saved. And so I've got a, a really strong motivation, I guess, in my own heart to explain to people what their salvation actually means. And the most important thing to start with, in my view, is to understand that it doesn't make any difference what you might think about yourself or what other people might think about you, but what really matters in salvation is what God thinks about you. That's the really, really important thing to keep in mind. Because in many of the epistles that deal with the grace by which we're saved, Paul talks a lot about how we're no longer under the law, but we're under grace and we have a certain freedom. Because of that, we have the assurance that we are saved, not because of anything that we ever did or ever could do, but simply because God loves us so much that through grace, he actually found a way to save us. And I really believe it's important that people understand that. And so actually, there's about 1.3 billion people in this world who call themselves Christians, and they should all be here listening to this today. But um, they're not here. I really don't know why. But... Uh, in time, of course, they, they will be, and through, through media and so on, they will get to hear these kinds of messages. So what I've done today is really to summarise just uh, four major aspects of what it means to be saved. And we could add a lot of points to this, but I think if we can just remember these four things, then that will prevent us from getting to the point where we think we're not good enough for salvation or we're not good enough to turn up to church every week or we're not good enough to participate in some kind of, of ministry. So I want to focus on the areas of our identity, our character, our status and our place. So our identity, our character our status and our place. Everyone is familiar, I think, with the, the verse that is so often used to describe the heart of God in relation to salvation. It's John 3.16, possibly the best known single verse in the whole of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. <clears throat> this has been quoted countless times as an underpinning for so much that is done by way of ministry, reaching out to, to the lost. But I think 
for those of us who have been saved, there's some other key verses as well that it's worth keeping in mind because they just strengthen our understanding of the heart of God towards us and the provision that he made through Jesus Christ, his son. In 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verse 15, we read, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So what was the purpose of Jesus Christ on earth? Fundamentally, it was to save sinners. So everything that he did, everything that he taught, all the healing that he performed, everything he did must be understood in light of his purpose. He came into the world to save sinners. He gave up all the glory of his own heavenly existence and chose to come to earth in the form of a man. Not even a man, actually, but as a baby. A vulnerable, helpless baby. He gave up his deity to do that. And he grew, he grew in influence, and eventually, of course, he died on the cross. But everything from his conception right through to his death on the cross and his resurrection was purposeful and the purpose was to save sinners. That is really an amazing little passage to meditate on. In Romans 5.8 there's another astounding statement and we can I guess take these things for granted. We, everybody knows Romans. Everyone who's been a Christian for a few years at least knows Romans. They've probably heard sermons on Romans. They've probably read the book of Romans numerous times. But listen to this one verse. Romans chapter 5 verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Some translations say, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's an amazing thing. He didn't die for us because we were good people. He didn't die for us because of any inherent holiness. He died for us when we were sinners, when we weren't worthy of his death. We, we weren't worthy of salvation, but nevertheless... Because Christ came into the world to save sinners, through him, God demonstrates his love toward us. Jesus Christ died for us while we were still sinners. And this last little scripture that I have from Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25, to me personally, this is the most powerful statement about salvation. And in fact, I'm going to read a few verses around um, the verse that I have up there from uh, Hebrews. Great, it's a great book, Hebrews. It's a great book, a great treatise on uh, salvation and what it means to be a Christian, someone under grace and not under law. But if we have a look at... Um, let me see where should I start. I might start from verse 18. 
and read through to the end of verse 27. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he, that is Jesus, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. That word uttermost is such a powerful, powerful word because you can't actually get any further than the uttermost. So that indicates to me that salvation is such a complete thing that there is nothing we can do to make it more complete. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I just love that word uttermost, and I've meditated on that word. You can't go any further than the uttermost. There is nothing beyond the uttermost, and that is how much we are saved. Importantly also, we note that we come to God through Jesus. And as an aside, this is really what makes Christianity an exclusive religion. There are not many paths to this God because the Bible states very clearly that the one way, the only way to God is through Jesus Christ. And why is that? It's because the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what, is what actually makes it possible for us to have this salvation to the uttermost. Unless we come to God through Christ, we cannot receive salvation. But when we do, we are saved to the uttermost. At the very point of salvation... We are what the Bible calls born again. Our spirit is regenerated. And I'll just read from the book of Titus here. Um, Titus chapter 3, verses 4 to 7. But when the kindness and the love of God our Saviour toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us 
through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Saviour, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And 2 Corinthians 5, 17. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. And it would probably be faster to find that one electronically than in my physical Bible here. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We're made up of a spirit, a body and a soul. So fundamentally, as far as God is concerned, we are spiritual beings. We possess a soul. That's the mind, the will, the emotions. And we live in a physical body. At the point of salvation, our spirit is totally renewed. It is totally regenerated. And that is the sense in which we become a new person. Our body, our soul, is not regenerated, not renewed. You can have a broken leg at the point of salvation and you can still have a broken leg afterwards. It might be healed, but you can still have a broken leg. You can have mental illness before you were saved and you can still have a mental illness after the very point of salvation. What we need to do as we walk out or live out our Christian lives is to allow our regenerated spirit to actually flood and control our soul and our body. But really that's a topic for another, another sermon. Now what I want to do is to talk about the before and after situation. So we've established the fact of salvation. Let me turn now to say a few words about our identity before we are saved. And let me emphasise, we're really talking here about how God sees us. The way we see ourselves and the way other people see us is irrelevant in the kingdom of God. So our perceptions of ourselves, other people's perceptions don't matter. What matters is how God sees us. So our identity before our salvation is that of sinner. A sinner is one whose inward motivation is determined by things other than belief in Jesus. So you can be a sinner, but yet do good things. And often people ask, how come good people go to hell? They go to hell because they're sinners. And it's not so much what it is they do, but it is their inner motivation that determines their identity. So when our, our works, when the things that we do, are actually fundamentally motivated by our belief in Jesus, then we're not a sinner. But that can only happen, of course, through salvation. I want to actually read a longish passage, passage out of Romans here. Romans is another fabulous primer on what it means to be a Christian, although Paul being a bit of an academic, 
Paul being a bit of an academic, of course, tended to write very long sentences and, and include a lot of ideas in the one sentence. But uh, starting from verse 12 of chapter 5 and reading through to 21, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law, nevertheless death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offence, for if by the one man's offence many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from the one offence resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from, the, from many offences resulted in justification. For if by one man's offence death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Now most of those verses are actually in parentheses, which is an idea that is kind of inserted into the rest of the flow of the passage. It continues, Therefore, as through one man's offence judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offence might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a key verse in there, which is uh, verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. So sin entered through Adam and has been in the world ever since and still is. But through the obedience of Jesus Christ, all of those who accept the free gift of salvation become righteous. So their identity, our identity, is changed from that of sinner to that of saint. God sees us as saints. A saint is simply one who is sanctified or holy. The, the Greek word which is translated sanctified and holy in the New Testament is the same word. To be sanctified or to be holy is to be separated from sin and dedicated or consecrated to God by our belief in Jesus. So once we've accepted salvation, God no longer sees us as a sinner. He sees us as a saint and at the point of salvation we are sanctified or we are made holy in God's eyes. And you might ask, what happens if we sin? Well, the truth of the matter is that all of us slip up and we do engage in sinful acts, even if it could be an act of unforgiveness or an act of envy 
or an act of anger. We slip up, but God does not shift us from the status of saint back to the status of sinner. Now, if that happened, think, think of it. If that happened, if that was the way God was, if I happened to be angry at my wife and had a heart attack and dropped dead on the spot, I'd go to hell. But that's not how God works. Because I've accepted the gift of salvation, God sees me as a saint. And believe it or not, even if I was angry with my wife and I had a heart attack and dropped dead, I would still be going to heaven, not hell. Because I have already been forgiven of my sin through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that death is efficacious to cover my sin, past, present and future. Amen. Does that give me the right to be a sinner? Definitely not, because if we were to read on in that passage from Romans to the first verse, first couple of verses of chapter 6, this is what it says. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who are died to sin, who died to sin, live any longer in it? You see, the effect of salvation is that we don't have a sinner's heart anymore. And what we do is actually motivated by our belief in Jesus Christ. The fact that we've been saved by the grace of God and not through any works of our own does not give us license to sin. And if we sin, we do suffer the consequences, but we do not lose our salvation. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. As far as God is concerned, we remain saints. I do believe that it is possible to repudiate our salvation. That's a topic for another sermon. But I think if someone is fully aware of what salvation means and they make a decision to repudiate their salvation, then they can end up in hell. But you've actually got to work very hard at it because salvation itself changes your identity from sinner to saint let me move on now to say something about our character before we're saved our character is wicked and there are literally hundreds of references in the old testament that juxtapose the wicked with the righteous the wicked are simply those who are not saved at, at, at the very base, those who are not saved are wicked. They have a wicked character. And again, that is not always borne out by acts that necessarily do direct harm to other people. But I, I myself, I can think of people who are not saved, who many would say they're good people, but yet they support causes that are contrary to the principles in the Word of God. So most of the world will say they're good people. They're not going around murdering anybody. They're not violent uh, in their domestic situation or anything like that. They don't cheat the tax man. But yet they hold views and they support views that are directly contrary to the Word of God. That's the sense in which they are wicked. A wicked person is someone who does not uphold in thought, word and deed the principles that are set out for us in the Word of God.
God sees our character as righteous after we've been saved. There are some key uh, scriptures here, and I might actually get some others to find them for me if you like. And you might even read it out for me. Hebrews 10.16 is the first one. Hebrews 10.16 and then 2 Corinthians 3 verse 3. <laughs> Hebrews 10.16 This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And 2 Corinthians 3 verse 3 Clearly you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written with, not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. Isn't that wonderful? I, I don't know whether this is really good doctrine, but the picture I have in my mind is that the day I was saved, the instant I was saved, God downloaded his law into my heart. That, you know, I don't have to spend years and years and years studying the books of the law to understand how God wants me to live. That part of the salvation deal is that God actually downloaded his law into my heart. And see, when my spirit is regenerated, it's almost as if God gets a big USB stick, shoves it in our heart, and, you know, downloads everything off that USB stick, and, and there it is. So you see, I, I see much of what we do as Christians as being the natural outworking of that regeneration of our spirits. The only thing that will stop that will be if in our, in our soul we determine that we're not going to allow the spirit to overflow and to influence what we do. It's almost as if we live rightly by accident. That is we will actually have an inclination after our salvation to live our lives right. So we will want to roll up our sleeves and be involved in ministries. We will want to go to church so that we can express our relationship with Jesus in the company of others. Uh, we will want to get rid of wrong thinking. Uh, we will change the words that come from our lips, all of those things, and it will be as if we're conforming to the heart that underlies all of the law in the Old Testament. Why is that? Because we've actually now got God's heart in our heart because he's downloaded his heart to our own heart. That's what it means. His law is being written on tablets of flesh or his law is being written in our hearts. And, and for me, this is the most wonderful thing because what it means is that Christianity is not what I call a huff-and-puff religion. That we don't have to get out of bed in the morning and think to ourselves, how am I going to express my love for God today? What am I going to do for God today? We never actually have to do that. All we have to do is get out of bed and just remind ourselves that our identity is saint and our character is righteous. Now, we don't have a lot of time to go into what righteousness means in great detail, but I think it is important to... Uh, no, I'll come to this shortly because um, it's associated with our status, which I want to um, talk about. Next. So we've talked about our identity. Before we're saved, we're sinner. After we're saved, we're saint. We've talked about our character. Wicked before we're saved. Righteous after we're saved. 
our status before we're saved is condemned and our status after we're saved is justified. So we are condemned because those people who are not saved have actually by default chosen to end up in hell. That is, they have condemned themselves. This is a harsh reality. See, we don't like the idea of nice people that we know, good people that we know. They might be close friends. They might be um, relations. They might be people we work with. You know, we find it a little bit hard to understand how a good God could condemn people who appear to us to be good. But remember, you can't uh, be a saint and you can't be righteous unless you've accepted the free gift of salvation. And see, if you don't accept the gift of salvation, by default, you're saying, yep, I accept my condemnation. I accept that my eternal state will be in hell. Once we're saved, however, our status is justified. There's um, a key scripture there in the book of Acts. Would someone like to find that one and read that one out for me? It's Acts 13, verses 38 to 39. Acts 13, verses 38 to 39. Therefore, my friends... I want you to know that through Jesus the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed in you. Through him everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Isn't that amazing? Justification means we are set free from sin. Three points I think are worth making about justification. The first one is that we're set free from sin in the sense that there is a legal pronouncement that we are no longer responsible for the sin that we committed and therefore we do not suffer the punishment for sin. So we have a legal status that says, yep, you sinned in the past, that no longer matters and you are not going to receive the punishment for sin that is set out in the Old Testament law. So your legal status changes in that sense from being condemned to eternal death to being justified, which gives you the right to eternal life. There's another sense in which you are set free from sin as well. Sin no longer rules over your life. You're going to be a slave to sin or a slave to Jesus. One or the other, you can't be a mixture of both. So by definition, before you are saved, you are a slave to sin. After you are saved, you are a slave to Jesus Christ. Or perhaps a better, a better way of putting it would be a bond servant. Someone who willingly becomes the slave of another. And in return, that other guarantees... To look after you. So that's one aspect of what it means to be justified. Our legal status is, is changed from being condemned uh, to being justified, which means our sin no longer counts, and that applies to past, present, and future. Past, present, and future sin. There's another sense, though, 
in which justification is actually about relationship. And to be justified is to be a person who is in relationship with, with God. And that, that idea actually comes from the Old Testament, that the idea that there's both a legal status and a relationship um, um, that are part of justification. I just love that. When you sit down and think about what that means, it really is an amazing thing that Jesus did for us on the cross at Calvary. He made it possible for God to see us no longer as being condemned in status, but to be justified. I want to turn now to talk about our place. The Bible teaches very clearly that before our salvation, we live in darkness. After salvation, we live in light. So if someone would like to find and read for me 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvellous light. There you go. We've been called out of the darkness <clears throat> and into his marvellous light. Uh, there are other translations and other passages that talk about us actually being translated or transported from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And uh, darkness, of course, is a, is a way of representing evil and ignorance and all of those negative things. Um, light is used as a representation of life in Christ because he is our <coughs> light. So our place, if you like, changes from a place of darkness to a place of light. And again, when we think about that, that's something that is a very powerful thought which helps to keep us from acts of sin. When we see ourselves as God sees us, as someone who's living in the light, then that is a way of instructing our our soul not to engage in thought, word and deed which is inconsistent with God's word and with his nature. So under the law, under the Old Testament law, the way to be a saint, the way to be righteous, the way to be justified and the way to live in the light was to obey the law. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 12a, this is just the first half of that verse, it says, If you obey the law, the Lord will open to you his good treasure, the heavens, to give the rain to you in its season, and to bless all the work of your hands. So there's blessing under the Old Testament law. But as we know historically, and as we know from what the Word of God itself says, we just cannot actually live under law. We can't fulfill the law. Through grace, however, God made a way. And Galatians 3 verses 13 to 14 says in part, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of disobeying the law that the blessing or prosperity of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles. That's us in Christ Jesus. So it's by grace that our identity is changed 
from sinner to saint, that our character is changed from wicked to righteous, that our status is changed from condemned to justified, and that our place or placement is changed from darkness to light. And what I'd like to do now is just to move on to a, a short period of, of communion because there's a passage in 2 Corinthians, it's in chapter 5, verse 21, which focuses on uh, righteousness, and I think that's a great point at which we could take our communion. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus actually became sin for us. I know often people say he took our sin, and that's true, but this passage actually shows that it went much, much deeper than that. Jesus became sin. He was sin. God saw him not only as a sinner, God actually saw Jesus as Sin when he turned his back on Jesus as Jesus was on the cross and as Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? It was a rhetorical question. He knew the answer, of course. The answer was because Jesus had become sin for us. Because he became sin for us, he dealt with sin once and for all. Our sin past, our sin present, and amazingly, our sin future. And the reason why God sees us as saints and sees us as righteous and sees us as justified and sees us as people who walk in the light is that the result of Jesus becoming sin for us is that we exchanged our sinful state for one of righteousness. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So let's just meditate on that momentarily and then take our communion. So you might just want to spend 20 or 30 seconds meditating on that verse and then we'll share communion together.